Grace and peace to you from God the Father and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. So, the Bible tells us on day one, maybe lower my volume just a little bit, on day one, God spoke the world into existence. On day four, he made the sun, the moon, and all the stars, including the planets in our solar system. Now, God said that he made those, he put them there for signs and seasons. That's what he says. But, you know, the planets drew our attention right away. In Hebrew, the word for planet is moving star. Stars that kind of move around in the sky. And from the beginning of human history, we've dreamed about going to those planets, the moon mostly for a while, and then the, the other planets as we started to understand them. So along with all of our missions to the moon, there have been 60 missions to this planet, Mars. Now, over half of them, believe it or not, have failed. This is not an easy thing to do. If you think we can just set up a rocket and shoot and hit Mars with it, then I'd like to introduce you to a thing called mathematics, because it it's just not that easy, right? So... The first missions started out in the 60s, kind of about the same time we were going to the moon, we were trying to get to Mars. And even today, with our technology and and the rockets that we have, it takes about nine months to get something from here uh, to Mars, so it's not an easy shot. So, okay, so our obsession with Mars, secretly, was that we were looking for signs of life, anything, sign of life, that could dispel, finally, once and for all, this whole thing that we call the Bible and the creation. We said, if we can find life on Mars, then we can just dispel the whole entire thing. So that's what we were looking for. I mean, like it or not, that's what the, the whole um, objective was to it. So that was a, uh, throughout history. So now, we put some satellites out there, and they started to send some pictures back. And one of them shook the world. You guys probably remember this one, the face on Mars. Remember this? You've seen this before, right? Just nod your head if you're here on a voluntary basis, for starters. Okay, good. All right. So, all right. So this one shook. It said, well, there you go. It looks like something straight off of Easter Island, right? But there's a thing in, in our brains. Our brains are wired kind of crazy. And there's this phenomenon in our brains called uh, facial pareidolia. And that means that we see faces in common everyday objects. You guys know what I'm talking about, right? Take a look at this bathtub. I mean, who cannot see a face in this bathtub? I tell you what, if that was my bathtub, I'd be a little concerned because he looks a little suspicious here. I'm not sure exactly what's on his mind, but I don't know. Even common everyday bricks can have a face looking like them, right? And I'm pretty sure this next one is the inspiration that they got, Pixar got for cars, right? A very happy car, right? But that's who we are, right? That's what we think and that's how we deal with life. We just try to make associations with things. Um, and then, so, okay, now, um, fast forward to about 30 years or maybe a little bit more, uh, we finally landed something on Mars, which, again, is not an easy thing to do. That atmosphere is about um, 100 times thinner than our atmosphere, so you have to have ways of slowing things down so they don't crash too hard. But we got a, the rover on Mars, and uh, we went right to that face and said, all right, we're going to see what kind of idol this is on Mars, and this is what we found. Not exactly what we were hoping for. The trick of the light when those satellite images showed us that face, and we can't really see that face like we used to anymore. Now, we can look at this stuff and smile and say, you know, that that's kind of silly, um, a silly thought to begin with. But um, there's something about that whole um, need. It's almost a need wired within us to be able to recognize faces in different things, right? That's not, uh, you know, some kind of phobia or something. It's just who we are. We just look at things. Some people, one of my aunts said that uh, she looked at an outlet and saw a face, and then she said, well, the whole house is staring at me now. And she went through that for a little while. But still, it just is how we're wired. Now, we looked at that phenomenon along with our desire to worship things. 
So just like we see faces in places where there aren't really faces, we see items to worship in places there really aren't items to worship and things to worship. So there's no getting around the fact, though, that as humans we're built and we're wired and we're prepared to worship God the Father. Because like I've said in the last couple of weeks, we try to boil the gospel down to its simplest terms. Simplest terms, the first part of it is that God created you to have a relationship with him. And he gave you that desire to worship him, to go to him when, in our times of need, though to go to him in our times of joy and all those kind of things. Now, last week we talked about cravings, how we crave that relationship with God. But sometimes when we crave one thing, we fill it with something else. You know, pregnant women aren't actually craving pickles. They're craving that salt or that vinegar, that, but that's just a conduit that it comes through. So that worship that we're looking for is an insatiable need inside of us, but sometimes we look to the wrong things and we just recognize things in our lives the same way we recognize faces and things that aren't there, we recognize things in our lives as objects of worship. Now, when we hear the word idol, that's what we're talking about this morning, idols, um, our thoughts might turn to other cultures and other places. Surely that's not something that the United States goes to. I know we have idol, you know, American idol, but that's not a real thing. That's not what we're really talking about here. But uh, we talk about other cultures that are, that are openly, openly and knowingly replacing the Creator God with created items or created objects. Now, when I was in the Air Force, in, um, I was overseas for the longest time, and um, I got to travel to different countries and see a lot of different cultures and a lot of different ideas. And I got to firsthand witness a lot of idol worship. Now, we were in Japan for a little over six years, and uh, Japan has two major religions. Christianity is coming up around the, on the outside, but their major religions right now are Shintoism and Buddhism. Now, um, they worship idols, but it's not, they're not as obvious and they're not out all the time um, like they are in some other cultures. Like, for example, when I went to um, India, I had the, the fortune of going to, I was fortunate enough to go to India um, several times and spend several weeks there um, at a time, a couple of times. So, um, and whenever I went to a country, whenever I went to someplace else, um, I'm a tourist. I want to get out and I want to see that culture. I want to see some of the things. I want to take some pictures. I want to experience the food. I want to experience the atmosphere and all of that. So the first time I was in India and the first day we were there, we didn't have a gig until later that night. We had the whole morning and afternoon free. So I grabbed a couple of the guys and said, come on, we're going. And one of the guys from the consulate came in, was kind of our guide, took us around. We had a driver and we, were, we went to um, these old ruins about um, where this massive sundial, learned a lot about sundials and saw this cool stuff. We went to a market and then we went to a temple. Because one of the other guys said, hey, could we see one of those temples? And the guy said, yeah, there's one, there's a big one right down the road. So at this temple, what we were seeing were all these God-like statues on these buildings. I've got one picture here that I want you to see. So there's this temple complex. There's like, it's um, kind of like Heritage Hill kind of, you know, there's buildings all over the place. And all of them look similar to this. And on all those roofs, you can see all those individual statues of these gods. Now, um, the way it works in India is you go to a place like this, and there's no official guides, but there's people that come up kind of for tips. Or that's kind of what, how they make their living. They guide people like us around, and you give them a little tip at the end, and we, we talk about these things. And so we, we're looking at this building, and then um, this is nothing compared to, check out, check out this next one. Look at the massive amount of gods. And now this has four sides, and this is not an anomaly. This is all over the country. And each of those um, statues represents a different god. 
And so now I'm talking to this dude, you know, who's, you know, showing me around and talking about this, and we're having a great time. And I said, okay, well, um, how many gods are there? And, and he said, well, uh, that's that is really hard to, uh, to say. Um, he said, you know, there's really no way to, to, uh, to count it. He said, it's got to be in the millions, though. And I did a little research after we got done there and tried more like 100 million or tried more like 300 million. Different idols, different, uh, representing different things, different families and things like that. So that's on the rooftops everywhere throughout this country. Now, let's take that down. This is a real life um, version of what Paul was experiencing in Athens that Nathan read a minute ago out of Acts 17. This is what he was looking at. Now, um, in India, and I might say this again later, but in India, they've got them all stacked up on the roofs. In Athens, they had them all over the country. They had them spread all over the place. So you'd be walking along, and there'd be idol worship uh, with little shrines all over the place, not necessarily on one uh, big building. Now, they have them within the temples also, but they're everywhere. One of the historians at the time, Pliny the Elder, said um, you couldn't go through a doorway or an archway that didn't have a god sitting on top of it to guard it, watch over it, or whatever they're thinking. But they're, they're everywhere. So that's what Paul is looking at while he's, while he's there in, in Athens. Now, this is during his second missionary journey, so around 50 A.D., somewhere right in there. Um, and now, I want to give you a little background of why he's here, um, because uh, he had had some trouble in Thessalonica. Um, some of the um, God-fearing Jews, is the way it says it, um, the way Luke says it in the book of Acts, um, didn't like Paul's message about the Christ, about Jesus, the Messiah, and the fact that the Jews killed him, and that now he's risen and he is the one that we should be worshiping. They said, ah, this is, this is crazy. And so the Jews were running him out of town, ran him out of Thessalonica, because they didn't really run him out, but there was so much chaos that he couldn't get anything done. So they said, well, let's just go to Barrera. So they went to Barrera, and then those people from Thessalonica followed him there, and they raised up as much trouble there. Finally, um, Timothy and Silas both said, okay, just go to Athens. We're gonna, we're, it's a safe place in Athens, and we'll come and get you, and we'll figure things out, and then when, when things are figured out, we'll come and get you. Okay, so now, that's where Paul is, and that's when Paul is. And so when Paul was in Athens, he did exactly what I would do. He went out, and he was a sightseer. He went out, and he was taking a tour of the city. So look at verse 16. It says this, While Paul was waiting for them, that's um, Timothy and Silas, he's waiting for them at Athens, um, his spirit was being provoked within him. This is like poetry, man. His spirit was being provoked within him as he was observing the city full of idols. This word provoked is going to be the word of the day. Because um, now Luke is writing um, Acts, right? So Luke is a different kind of writer. He uses different kinds of words. When Paul is writing later on, when he wants a word that doesn't, uh, needs to describe something that might not have a word for it, he kind of invents a word sometimes. He makes a compound or a triple compound word. Luke does just the opposite here. He goes old school. He goes back to Greek antiquity to pull this word out. We see this word one other time in the New Testament, and we only see it a couple of times in classic Greek literature. This word provoke means a couple of things. It's a pretty complex word. It means to stimulate. Okay, so his spirit was being stimulated. It means to irritate, like a pebble in your shoe kind of irritation. So it's causing some problems. But this is what, what Paul, this is where I really want to go with this. This word uh, provoke really means to sharpen, you know, to prepare, to equip. So the spirit is sharpening Paul's mind here and equipping Paul's mind. And the way we're going to see it here is going to blow our minds here in a couple of seconds. Now, and again, it says the city full of idols. Um, you know, like I said, some of the historians said that there were more um, idols in Athens than there were people. 
They said there were more idols in Athens than there was in the rest of Greece combined. Here they are in Athens. Again, lots of temples, but there's an awful lot of idols all over the place. And again, that's what Paul is seeing. 30,000 public statues. Not just little figurines. 30,000 public statues. You know, life-size and bigger statues in the city of Athens. It's really mind-boggling when you think about, you know, how many, how many um, idols are in the city. So when it says city full of idols, that's what we mean. Full of idols. Now, again, I showed you that, uh, that roof in Athens, but um, I mean the roof in, um, in India, but Athens is littered with them. And Paul was provoked. That word provoke can also mean exasperated, like he was beside himself seeing all these idols and all these people worshiping these idols, which was just more than he could take. It was actually making him angry. But Paul played it cool. Paul is a cool, cool as a cucumber, right? He goes to the marketplace. Uh, and, uh, and by the way, Paul's kind of a slow learner, too. He might be cool, but he's a slow learner because we think back in Thessalonica. Think about the time that this is happening, right? This is, he was in Thessalonica, went to the synagogue, got kicked out of the city, basically. Went to Barrera, went to the synagogue, got kicked out of that city, basically. And now here he is in Athens. And look what happens in verse 17. So Paul, he reasoned in where? Synagogue, come on, Paul, right? With both Jews and God-fearing Greeks. It's important to know that. That's not Christians. That's not, those are not followers of Christ. Those are Jews and God-fearing Greeks. Okay, so the God-fearing Greeks means the proselytes, the ones that, that weren't born Jewish, but they've adopted the Jewish um, culture and everything about it. So we would call them Jews. Jewish people would say, no, 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 they're not Jewish. They just do everything Jewish. They're not exactly. But in our mind, they'd be put, put in, the same, in the same group. So Jews and God-fearing Greeks. Okay, so he reasoned in the synagogue. He also reasoned in the marketplace, day by day. And then it says this, oh, casually, oh, to with those who happen to be there. Okay, so Paul just doesn't say, well, I'm just going to go here and, and see what happens. No, he picks it pretty carefully. He knows who's going to be where and when they're, where they're going to be and where he needs to be. Because some of those who happened to be there were two groups of philosophers that were existing at that time in Athens. One were called the Epicureans and one were called the Stoics. Um, now, to be completely honest here, um, I started to do a lot of research and started to compare and contrast the Epicureans and the Stoics. But then I started reading Luke a little more carefully, and he just bunches them all together. He just basically says these philosophers, never mind who they were. These philosophers were, happened to be there. So um, they invite him, long story short, to the Agropagus to, um, to lay out his, what they called this new teaching. He said, we want to learn this. But they had a little bit more of a motive in mind than just learning this. Because it wasn't just casual. They, no, they did go and debate these things. And Athens was the place where uh, it was still the center of university. It wasn't the city that it had been in the past. Corinth was kind of taken over for that. But Athens was still about the philosophers, still about their, their history. Now, again, what Paul said is literally beyond belief um, and how amazing. But again, I want to set the scene here. We could, again, we could talk about the differences between the Epicureans and the Stoics, and that's an interesting thought. But again, Luke kind of lists them as one. So that prompted me to look past, um, to look past that and into a couple of other things. Uh, for example, the very spot that Paul was standing, where he was standing and when he was standing there. Now, we should start by talking about um, the incredible people who were speaking there in the incredible history that were, where Paul is standing. So we're in Athens. Um, how about some, some words or some people that, that will fire some synapses in our, in our mind, but we might not know a whole lot about them, like Socrates, for example. Um, Socrates stood on that spot where Paul is standing, 
and was teaching. And uh, Socrates basically was, um, his philosophy was know thyself, right? Sometimes we say that in Greek, but know thyself. That's what Socrates was teaching. Followed closely by Plato, they actually overlapped each other. So Plato uh, was kind of the descendant or kind of the uh, disciple of Socrates. Plato was talking about how uh, teaching people how to develop the inner self, right? So it's all about self. It's not about God. It's about inner self. Socrates, Plato, and then right behind him is Aristotle, right? Aristotle, who tried to, how do you say it, tried to join physics and metaphysics together, something like that. But anyway, again, as hard as it is to believe, these guys overlapped each other. In the meantime, the Stoics and the Epicureans were, were being developed at that same time. The um, Stoics and Epicureans basically had the motto of um, eat and drink for tomorrow we die, right? This life is all we have. We don't have another um, afterlife after that. With all that, now that's the backdrop that Paul is talking to. Now all this happened uh, like three to four hundred years, depending on which one of those philosophers you want to talk about, three to four hundred years before Paul was standing here. But so Paul doesn't talk about those, those teachings. He goes back even further. He goes back to um, a, a part of, of the matter of, of worship idol. Um, this is where the Holy Spirit really, like I said, prepared Paul and just equipped him, again, beyond belief for what he's talking about here and what he presents to them. He pointed out to them that this was not a new teaching. This is not something new that you are hearing. In fact, he says, you have heard this from one of your own poets, one of your own philosophers, one of your own prophets. Um, okay, so I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself just a little bit. Let me back up just one more step here. Um, so, again, Paul is in Athens because he got kicked out of Thessalonica, he got kicked out of Barrera, and now he's here in Athens. Okay, so he's waiting for Timothy and Silas for things to cool down and to see what the next move is going to be. So he marches up Mars Hill, and he stands here at that place where, like I said, like all these men of history were standing and talking and, and debating and doing these things. But they brought him up Mars Hill not only to learn about what he was talking about, but to see if what he was talking about was actually legal or if we're going to press charges against this guy, this babbler, as they call him. Because here's the thing. It's illegal to present new gods to Rome, in Rome. You can't present new gods in Rome. There's gods all over the place, but they've all been sanctioned, they've all been checked off, and they've all been taken. So we can't just invent a god and just put it up and just start worshiping this. No, 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 no. It has to go through the scrutiny. It's got to go through these, these steps. So these guys um, were, were into serious business because it, it, this is illegal. In fact, um, you'll remember maybe from your history that uh, one of those philosophers I was talking about had to drink hemlock. You guys remember this? Remember hemlock? Once again, nod if you're in my room together with me, right? So uh, Socrates had to drink hemlock. Um, he was, it was a form of execution. So Socrates, um, and there's a famous picture I should have showed it to you, that uh, he's sitting there and he's drinking this, this hemlock. Well, why did he get executed? Why did he have to drink hemlock? Because he had introduced new gods to Rome. These guys took this seriously. Socrates got executed for this. Now, they're accusing Paul of the same thing. But Paul says, this is not uh, what you think it is. He says in verse, uh, verse 22, he says, um, again, he was about to blow their minds and your mind too. Paul stood in the midst of the Agropagus and said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. Now, we've scrutinized that word religious, that Greek word, a little bit, because it can also mean the word superstitious. But Paul is not trying to lose his audience in the first thing he's saying to them. He's welcoming in, them in. He's talking about who they are, and he's talking about then what he is going to tell them and what he is going to teach them. So verse 22 
says, um, you're very religious. One of the historians said, again, you could find a God everywhere, on top of every doorway, on top of every archway, and uh, the plethora of gods that we are talking about. Then verse 23 says this, For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, right, while I was on tour, while I was taking a walk around, he said, I found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. Now he goes on to tell them that one of your philosophers, one of your teachers, actually brought this up. And what happened now, uh, the philosopher was Epidemius, um, and this is like maybe 600 B.C. So about the time of like Nebuchadnezzar, um, I'm sorry, Nebuchadnezzar, um, Daniel, about that time, when, when the Jewish ideas were getting spread around the rest of the world. Right? We think about the Jews going into exile and getting out of Jerusalem. Well, one thing that that did was brought God into the rest of the known world. So people started to hear about this. And Epidemius had heard about this. So now, in 600 B.C. here in Athens, some kind of, uh, of, of uh, epidemic came up. We don't know exactly what happened, but there was something happening here. And Epidemius said, our gods can't handle this. We need to pray to the one true living God. We don't know his name, so we're calling him the unknown God. But he's one that's already existed and that has already and has always existed. Kind of the same thing that Jonah was saying to the men on the ship when he was saying, we're, we're worshiping the one true living God. So they did some crazy things that make sense to us now. They sacrificed sheep to this unknown God. They didn't know what to call him. And they were very careful not to just call him something because they don't want to offend this God by calling him something that he isn't or using a name that, that doesn't, isn't proper to him. So they left it at that. They said they called him the unknown God or sometimes they call him the unnamed God. This is the God that we're worshiping, the unnamed God. So God had mercy on them and you know what happened? That epidemic went away. And so they kept this. And they didn't, the one thing that they didn't do was clear out everything else and pray to the one true living God. But they knew about him. They had an idea about him. Some of that started to fall away because, like I said, this was 600 B.C., so this is a while ago that all this happened. But Paul pulls this out and says, don't you even know why you have these shrines around? Don't you even know who this unknown God is? And he starts to tell them about it. And now to be safe, now there's Jews in the city, so to be safe in the city, because there's a synagogue right here, he stays with the one true living God. He doesn't really bring Christ into it yet. He's planting some seeds around talking about who that one true living God is. And he says, this is the God that gives us life, breath, and everything else. This is the one true God that takes care of these things for us. Now again, you, we already know about him. Right? We already know about that one true living God. But how close are we to him? And how much do we ask him into our lives? How much do we embrace that relationship with him? I said at the beginning, and I'm saying it week after week after week, God created you to have a relationship with him. What are we doing with that relationship? Is it an active relationship, or is it something on paper, something we think about once in a while, something we take out on Sunday morning and dust it off a little bit, look at it, and then we put it back in the folder for the rest of the week? Is it something that we live into, or is it something we just kind of think about every once in a while when, when something goes wrong? Because here's the thing. You know, when we talk about idols, we might think about foreign countries. We might think about them. We might think about those, those roofs in India. Or we might think about all the different the gods, all the different statues around different places around the world. You know, it's closer than we think. You know, and I always say this, when, when we're reading through Scripture, we've, we've got to own it, and we've got to be in it. We've got to walk around in it. We've got to live it, right? 
And so sometimes we think, well, that's them and this is us, and good and bad. But I want us to think more like uh, those, uh, those people in Athens. And I want us to think about how we're more like them than we'd like to admit. How we have a lot of different idols in our lives and how we don't always trust that one true living God. we got a name for him, but sometimes we don't always use that name, not in the right way anyways. But that's how, that's how we think. And like I said, that idol worship is closer than we think to each other. It's not uh, these, uh, these foreign ideas. It's something that we own. It's something that we experience. Now, to illustrate that, I just want to show you this quick video about idol worship, and I'm going to talk about it um, on the other side. I was watching TV the other day, and this show comes on with these religious fanatics. They were crazy. Well, you would think they were crazy if you didn't understand their culture and their religion. See, that's just the thing. They were worshipers of idols. And they took things to extremes. They painted their bodies. They wore these ridiculous costumes. They chanted. They danced. They, they made sacrifices to their idols. But they had built these enormous temples to worship their idols in. It seemed like their entire existence climaxed into this one scenario, this one over-the-top act of worship. You don't really relate, do you? Let's try it again. I was watching TV the other day, and this show comes on with these religious fanatics. They were crazy. See, that's just the thing. They were worshipers of idols, and they took things to extremes. They painted their bodies. They wore these ridiculous costumes. They chanted. They danced. They, they made sacrifices to their idols. They had built these enormous temples to worship their idols in. It seemed like their entire existence climaxed into this one scenario, this one over-the-top act of worship. Idol worship. It's not just about golden calves anymore. It's not just about golden calves anymore. Because here's the thing. <clears throat> Our personal idol, idols are too numerous to count. Just like I asked that guy in India, how many gods are there? How many idols are there? He's, I can't put a number on it. But those idols have some things in common. First of all, they come from the enemy, and they're all designed to do the same thing, to pull us away from God, to pull us away from our Creator, to pull us away from what Paul says, the one that gives us life, breath, and everything else. So once again, I'd like you to think more about how we're like the people of Athens rather than think that that has nothing to do with us people of Athens who come welcoming the many different kinds of idols and willingly bringing them into our lives. Then we need to be a people to listen to the words of the gospel. And it's not something we haven't heard before. Just like Paul said, this isn't something you haven't heard before. It's just something you haven't brought into your life on a regular, daily, hour-by-hour, minute-by-minute basis. It's not a new message, but it's something we need to hear again, fresh for the first time. And in our hearts, let me just 
sang about. Look God in the eye, in our hearts, in our minds, and say, Lord, we, we cast down these idols. Some of we're not even aware of them. We cast down those idols, those things that we're trying to replace you with, bringing into our lives. And we have to ask him to purify our hearts, purify our thoughts, purify our desires, because just like we see those Faces in places that aren't faces. We see idols to worship in places that we shouldn't be worshiping. So where are we spending our time? Where are we spending our efforts? Where are we spending our energy? Where are we spending our money? What are we doing? Are we living for that one true God? And Paul says, you, he's been here all along and you've known about him all along, but we just haven't made that step. We just haven't brought him in because all these other things seem to get in our way, clutter the whole idea. To look God in the face, to look God in the eye and say, we cast out, we cast down our idols by your power and by your strength. Will you stand with me? So Lord, that's our prayer this morning. We don't do it on a regular, willing basis all the time, but Lord, it happens. We replace you with other things. And when we do that, you identify that as an idol, something that's taking away from our relationship with you. So we're asking, we're asking you to help us to identify some of these things, some of these moments, some of these ideas that are pulling us away, that are wasting our lives away when we should be concentrating on you and focusing on you and relying on you. So the things are going well, the things are not going well, help us to keep you at the center of our thoughts, the center of our attention. Again, we thank you for being our creator. The way Paul said it, you you give us life, you give us breath, and you give us all things. So thank you for being our God, and now we ask you to help us, guide us, lead us, provoke us into being your people. And now, Lord, as we turn to your table, we remind ourselves of who you are and what we believe. You teach us a lot of things about who you are and who we are because of you. We put a lot of those ideas together into the Apostles' Creed. And so now we want to confess together what we believe with those words.